Hey everybody, this is Derek. This is Mark. What's up? Bliss Bliss, as they say in Iceland. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Konda Blessa. Oh, is, is that what it is? That's the second thing. That's another thing that he says. I don't even know if I'm saying it right, I, but I, I just, he, that's what it like, sounds bliss, like. Bliss, or bliss, bliss, or something. Yeah, Ben says that, and then Jerry says the other one. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, there's probably some Twin Peaks wiki something where they explain all that. I'm sure there is. I was just looking uh, a different foreign language thing up for Twin Peaks. Uh, J un homme solitaire, which we'll talk about today. Oh. Yeah, wait, what was that in reference to? Jeez, that was in this le- most recent uh, episode. Yeah, that's in this episode that we're going to talk about today. The, the grandson of Mrs. Tremont says it. Yeah. So so what's going on with Donna? Is she uh, at the entrance of the, the Red Room or the uh, Black Lodge? Excuse me. Um, I don't know. Uh, isn't that kid? I should have looked this up before the episode. I think that that kid is also... Um, played by Lynch's son. Let's see if I can pull that up real yeah, quick. Yeah, he looks like right. David Lynch, and then you look yeah. it up, and then you realize, oh, that's his son. So, of course, he does. Yeah. And he has the hair thing going. Yeah, and I think... I don't want to talk out of turn. I'll try to look it up. I think he also might be one of the musical guests in season three. Maybe that's wrong. I think... He, I, th- I swear his kid was in... A band that played in season three. Anyway, okay, I'll look that up in the background while we proceed. But before we get into any of that, we got freaking um, Infinite Jest to talk about today. You can't top that. No, sir, you cannot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't send us an email about Infinite Jest because then we're just going to read it word for word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is exactly what we intend to do today. Uh, I don't know if we should dox the sky fully, but you posted a great video about uh, the hero's journey in Infinite Jest as embodied by Don Gately, which we're going to talk about today. Excellent video. Everyone should go check it out on Diz's YouTube channel, Animus Empire. Well, thank you. And uh, yeah, and, and Diz shared some email that he got in response to it from a, a guy named Tim, who is uh, very knowledgeable and opinionated about Infinite Jest. We love to, we love to see that. So uh, we're going to get into some of the stuff that, that Tim said. Um, today, but I don't, maybe first of all, before we get into like the reaction, do you want to just talk about the video itself a little bit? Maybe you could give like a quick overview or like a, uh, inducement for people to watch it. Yeah. Well, uh, geez, what did I say? Oh yeah. So I talk about <laughs> the hero's journey a lot. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's one of those things I was into Jung before I started reading Joseph Campbell, but definitely reading Joseph Campbell here with a thousand faces, the guy who kind of broke down story structure more definitively than Jung did, although Jung definitely noticed these uh, similarities, of course, between, between mm-hmm. different stories and they, how, they have a, the, the, all they all, how they all have a similar structure. Joseph Campbell just made it a little bit more concrete, more specific. And I mean, have you read that book, Here with a Thousand Faces? No, I've just watched the Power of Myth yeah. uh, TV interviews, which everyone should check out. They're dope. If you want to see the real Joseph Campbell being interviewed, um, and he's a great talker and he can, he can go on, uh, and, but he's a very interesting talker. He's not like normal. He's not just like a professor. He has a certain, in my opinion, sort of interestingness to him. And, um, I think by way of a lot of examples, he covers a lot of the same ground in that, that, that the book is, is all about. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of examples in the book. 
Mm-hmm. And he says, look, every story is essentially the same. And it turns out that he's right. And there's been a, different iterations of the the hero's journey since then in, in different books. Um, but it's all pretty much the same thing. And, uh, you know, I think people get the idea like, oh, that's just for classic stories like Prometheus. Okay. Like Prometheus has, has a certain structure, and, but, you know, Don Gately in Infinite Jest, it's a postmodern novel. It, it doesn't fit the same uh, arc, but I think it definitely does. And that's what I, uh, you know, try to explicate in that video. I mean, did you agree with everything that I said, or is there something to uh, point out there? Well, the thing that's so cool and interesting about, you know, the hero's journey structure it, itself, and then also just the more general principle of kind of what this sort of analysis is all about, is that it's not about intention. And this is the thing that I used to always get stuck on as a very sort of literal, analytical you know, uh, it's just the way that my mindset typically is. Um, it doesn't have to be the case that it was intended to be structured in this way in order for it to wind up having this structure. You could be trying to do something completely different, but I would argue, and I think that Campbell would argue, I think Jung would argue, I think that you would argue that there's something in us, there's something in the structure of the way that our neurons are connected, you know, maybe not literally, but you know what I mean, like at that level, um, like the architecture of our thought process and of our consciousness that is going to make it so that these patterns play out. And so without ever even thinking about the hero's journey um, while reading the book, I all of a sudden see how it fits perfectly when you describe it in the video. And I think that I was imagining like even Wallace might wind up <laughs> could have, you know, if, if, if DFW watched your video, he might wind up he might have wound up thinking like, oh, damn, yeah, I wasn't thinking about that, but I, sure, sure, I did it. I did the hero's journey there. Yeah, well, I mean, Joseph Campbell and Jung was making this point, too, that, yeah, our, our brains have a certain architecture, I guess you could say. I mean, it's not, uh, look, I mean, we're more likely to make certain connections as opposed to others, let's just say, and that, that's where we get our archetypes from. And mm-hmm. um, because of that, if you are going to grow and evolve as a human, you need to go through several stages of development. Mm-hmm. And they tend to line up in a, parti- in a particular order. And it works that way because when, you know, one stage leads to the next. So if you're going to have a story that lasts for hundreds, thousands of years, it needs to resonate with everybody. So it's going to have a similar kind of structure. So, right. It might, be like, it might be more of a Darwinian argument that there's like a selection pressure so that the stories that don't comport to the structure are the ones that die off because they're not as compelling. They're not as memorable. They don't hit us the same way. Yeah. I I remember I I had this analogy when I gave a presentation in class back when I was in school, grad school. Uh, It's like we all have a basically the same knee (laughs) because, because yeah, through Darwinian pressure, knees just work better when they have this form, you know, given where we are now in our evolutionary development physically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some knees work better than others, but they all have the, the same basic structure. And it's the same thing with stories for the same reason. Like, why do all right. stories have the same structure? Well, because it must say something about us because there have been stories that have been made. Like there were stories around during the Bible when the Bible was written in 500 BC or whatever. There were stories around then, but we don't, uh, you know, recite them now. We don't read them now because they, they lack something. 
they 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 lacked like a, a full structure to them that we could latch on to. So yeah, I mean yeah. it's um yeah, we're talking about story structure, but in, in this in the exact same breath we talk about the structure of our brain and how it works and if you're going to grow and develop or, you know, transcend whoever you, th- whatever you think your identity is now, you have to go through some of these, uh, you know, some of these plot points really is what it is. And I think the thing that I really like, ag- not agreed with the most, but the thing that kind of like hit the hardest and I thought was like the best insight that you were bringing to the table uh, in your video was talking about how it's not just like on a superficial level that the beats of what happens in Don Gately's story match up with the increments or the levels of the hero's journey uh, as described by Joseph Campbell, but also that there's something deeper, which is that this process of him going through a hero's journey is about a psychological overcoming. It's about a growth and a, uh, yeah, an overcoming and a becoming uh, in Don Gately, that's like that's the truly heroic thing. It's not just the matter of, you know, going on this journey and fulfilling these individual episodes. It's the fact that they're related to each other, and that what you're doing by the time you get to the end of the story is you're overcoming something that had hindered you or that had set you on your course in the beginning. And specifically, you picked out uh, addiction uh, with Gately, which is like kind of an obvious one. Of course, it's a huge theme in infinite jest, but, uh, it's, you know, Gately is obviously the ultimate representation of, of defeating that and kind of, you know, humanity winning out over this sort of, you know, virus that is infecting us, but also more subtly and more, I think, intimately related to the deep, dark, you know, underbelly of infinite jest. The other issue you picked out is codependence, specifically a sort of mother issue in Don Gately. Um, which is easy to miss or gloss over or diminish in value or whatever. But I think you highlighted it really well when you talked about how, you know, at the beginning of Don's life, and you could blink and miss this, you know, if you're not a careful reader, this is a a gigantic book, you know, we're only recalling these details because, you know, we've read it five times. And even us, you know, we're going to screw some stuff up, uh, as we'll get into later on with this email from, from, from your, uh, from your viewer. Yeah. But, um, you could blink and miss it and, and forget the fact that Gately's whole spiral in his life really does date back to the fact that not only was his mama drunk, but that he was in this sort of premature protector sort of role, or I don't know what you would want to call it, but but he basically decides one night that he's going to drink his mom's vodka. Uh, and you argue, and I think it's 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 fair to read the book this way, that essentially what he's doing there is it's not just because he has an alcoholic gene, it's because of some sort of impulse within him to, he, he sees that this is hurting his mother, he wants the, the vodka to not be there for her, you know, or he wants to somehow sort of like shield her from this blow or, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that sort of codependence issue uh, is something that needs to be worked out, uh, not just the the booze itself. Yeah, good point, me. Mm-hmm. Way to make that point, Diz. So one thing, I can't remember, um, we're going to get into Tim's email in a minute here. I can't remember if he pointed this out or not. One thing that stuck out to me, just to uh, mention to you, though, is that I think it's important to note that at the end of the book, um, which is an early step in Gately's hero's journey, again, the book is non-chronological, but when he has the 
the sunshine incident, as you call it, um, where the, this this gang who Gately's buddy has fucked over, um, basically, you know, break in and, and victimize them. Um, they don't make Gately watch the entertainment, which is what you said in the video. They make him look at himself in a mirror, uh, which I think is very interesting and spooky when you read the book. Um, but it has a, it has a similar kind of resonance because like at that point, you know, not to rehash the whole plot of the book, but like it is a very dark and interesting uh, and just very vividly spookily rendered episode in the book. Um, Gately and his buddy, Gene Fackelman, they know that they're fucked. They've screwed over these guys and they're dead meat. Um, but as part of screwing these guys over, they've come into possession of a ridiculously enormous <laughs> pile of opioids. And so they decide to just go on a complete, uh, you know, out of control drug binge uh, and, and just, you know, blank out the fact that they're toast. Um, and so, yeah, in his like final bottom of the barrel moments, um, they're holding a broken, like fragmented, weird mirror underneath him. And he has to look down at his like drooling, gigantic, pathetic face uh, <laughs> as they, you know, as he would probably think, like as they're about to kill him. Now, he doesn't wind up dead, but he gets the shit beat out of him and gets left on the beach with the tide way out, as we all as we all know. I think that episode is kind of interesting on a superficial level. I just can't help but pointing out the sort of interconnectedness of that whole thing. The whole idea of like funny mirrors uh, and the way that like the the light plays uh, with the mirrors and the way that could affect your perception of yourself and, you know, your your self-reality and all that stuff is obviously a huge part of James Oren and Condenza's filmography. He was a, you know, amongst other things, an optical genius, uh, and his insights into those things helped invent annular fusion and also create all these movies. And ultimately, from what little we know, from what little hints were given in the book, it's also related to part of the reason why the entertainment is so addictively compelling, it has something to do with the lens that he was able to create uh, for filming that thing. Um, so anyway, it's all kind of interconnected and cool. But um, So that's just like something I missed, but you think my analysis of that scene was correct? Like you would put it there? Right, exactly. It's. I mean, that's still definitely like that point in the journey. I can't remember which of the like fourteen things it matches up I with. I think that was the call to adventure. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's like it's what sets him on his way by basically serving as this turning point. Where like, okay, you survived that. Everything needs to change from here. Um, and he still didn't, you know, which is it's, it's very you know real psychologically that we still don't even when we get the wake up call. That's why the the refusal is very good, and that's what he did. You know, that's when he started right. to become a burglar guy. Right. Right. It has to it has to get to this other, you know, next level involving Duplessis, the the leader of the AFR at the time with yeah, that insanely another insanely vivid and weirdly funny uh incident of him accidentally killing that guy and so on and so forth. But I think the mirror part is just important. I just I can't help but think that mirrors mean a whole hell of a lot, you know, for us and for our consciousness and obviously they mean a lot for the book too. Um so, yeah, it's it's the next best thing aside from the entertainment, you know, since the entertainment didn't exist yet at that point in time, I guess, you know, looking in a mirror is the most kind of self-addicting thing that we can that we well, can didn't do. they make Falcon watch the entertainment? Derek, <sighs> am I getting this totally wrong? The entertainment didn't exist back then, right? 
Oh, These I, guys I are just like thugs. They don't have the entertainment. Who do they make watch? <laughs> Those thugs made somebody watch the entertainment. Maybe it wasn't Fackelman. I think you're thinking about later in the book where after they raid the Antitois shop and they actually come into possession of it, they start testing it out on people and forcing people to watch it. And doesn't Randy Lenz stumble into Antitois Entertainment just like as a as a total... Uh, um, doesn't he? I think so. Maybe they make him watch it. Yeah, I mean, it's one of these things like when I'm reading the book, like I swear I, I read every word. Mm-hmm. And when, as I'm reading it, I know what's going on and I'm getting it. And I think, yeah, this is awesome. But then somebody will just bring up something like that. And I'll be like, what? Really? Oh, maybe <laughs> you're right. Jeez. <laughs> you got that all. Yeah, but there's just. Look, I mean, there's just a lot of details in there. And uh, as I say, whenever I'm in a root project, I'm not a details guy. Mm-hmm. I'm a big picture guy. Well, I cope with the idea you're... everybody else does everything else. That's. <laughs> See, the thing is, you don't want to get stuck in a group project with me, Derek, is is the point there. Yeah. No, I get it. Now I'm, like, seeing, can I force, or can I, uh, can I challenge myself to actually go through my infinite just notes, which are <laughs> voluminous, and actually find this information, um, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's, uh, poor Tony, right? There, okay, right. They're okay, so we're in, we're near the end of the book. Poor Tony has stolen Ruth Van Cleve's handbag and they're running down the street mm-hmm. and they run down the alley toward the Antitois and then they don't they capture him? Yeah, Fortier gets back to the Antitois. The AFR has discovered a copy of the Samis dot there. And they start, like, first of all, they start volunteering. Like, the wheelchair assassins start, like, nobly volunteering. Like, I'll be the one to test it and see if it works, blah, 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 right? And then, yeah, right. Lens Lens has just purse-snatched somebody. Poor Tony gets away. Lens purse-snatches somebody? Yeah, Randy Lens is, like, walking down the street and he purse-snatches somebody. Um, and then, yeah, Lens is running down the street holding this purse. I gotta, like, search for Lens and find this now. Ah, shit. I think maybe that's not actually depicted in the book, but the implication is that they capture him and they make him watch it. Oh, I think, damn it. I wish I knew. Okay, you can email us, thebrazenheadspodcast at gmail.com. But I'm sure I'll also, like, discover it in a second here. Um, okay, anyway. So what does Tim want to talk about here? Yeah, let's get into that. I was thinking of just reading this email. I mean, it is long, but uh, it's got a lot of stuff in it. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, we can just start with the second paragraph here. My okay. own expertise. Okay, so let me let me just read this real quick. We can like get through this paragraph and and talk about what he's saying here. At a high level, um, he's talking about the fact that you know he perceives a different structure in the book, uh, and that there's like something to be said for this sort of what do you call it? Sort of like a tri tripartite structure of the book. Um, 
Okay, my own expertise is only the novel itself, but I was able to recognize a few trivial, trivial errors. They might have impacted your assessment and analysis, though, so I'd like to clear them up, et cetera, et cetera. Some were largely irrelevant, but nonetheless, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Don's street fight at Ennett House was actually with the inept FLQ and not the AFR. Yeah, I noticed that, too. I don't, I don't think it's relevant to your analysis, but, yeah, it's a good clarification. Hmm. The conclusion of Gately's personal narrative is also far more significant than you suggested. At the end, yes, he was trapped alone in his own head and unable to communicate because of intubation. Despite suffering from terrific pain, however, through sheer force of personal will, he was able to resist relief from narcotics and remain sober. That was obviously his hero's journey. Well, well see, that's what I talked with you about, and you seemed... Like you weren't sure whether he took the narcotics, and I kind of felt that it was left up to like interpretation whether he did. Mm-hmm. But do you think he's right here? I think the the point is the point that you made in your video, which is that everything that's super crucial, everything that is like an actual pivotal, did it happen or did it not happen, is precisely what Wallace leaves unanswered throughout this entire book. And you pointed out all the huge examples of it. Does the entertainment actually get released into the wild and, you know, have a negative impact on society? We don't really know. Is Joelle actually the most beautiful woman in the world? Or was that just like, you know, blowing smoke, you know, to try to pick up a date? Uh, and she really is disfigured underneath that veil. We really don't know. Uh, like all of these things, right? But and but get also, another I one mean, I was making the point, though, to be clear, and you may disagree, that those things aren't that crucial. Mm-hmm. So I don't feel like I, I'm missing anything. I, I think, well, what I say in the video, it's like hearing gossip about your neighbors. Like, I don't really need to hear that. It doesn't really affect me that much. Yeah, I mean, what I think about it is that it's only normal and natural for a consumer of a fiction to want to have answers to questions like that. Um so like the feeling of like needing those answers, I think is normative. And it was definitely there with me, like, as I've said a million times, like when I was finishing this book, like I started getting stressed out because I realized there weren't enough pages left and there was too much stuff that was still unanswered. I'm getting closer and closer to the end and they won't shut up about Gene Fackelman. And I'm just thinking like, oh shit, like I'm screwed here. Like none of this is ever going to get uh, resolved. Now, of course, when you finish the book and you think about it, you're not actually frustrated or not even disappointed that you don't have those answers. Um, it's, it's very much the opposite. You're totally magnetized. You're drawn in, you know, as, as you know, like when I finished this book for the first time, it was just, it was an unhealthy level of mental obsession. It's just like, I couldn't get this thing out of my head. And I think Wallace knew that he constructed it that way on purpose. He knew how to do that. It's meta. It's a comment on the Samis dot itself. Like that's what it does to people. Uh, so he kind of created a Samis dot by writing a story about one. Um, and it's just part of his special brilliance that he was able to do all of that. But on an intellectual analytical level, what you said is exactly right, which is that you don't need the answers to any of those questions. The book is exactly as crystalline perfect as it is because it doesn't give you all of those answers. It's smart enough to know that it's better not to, uh, even if you as the consumer don't really realize that in the moment of reading it. And uh, yeah, it's just one of the zillion reasons why it's so great. So so yeah, I agree. You don't need to know the answers to these questions. And, and the question of whether or not Gately ever actually took the drugs um, I don't know the answer. I don't remember if it's supposed to be clear or not. I don't really think that it is supposed to be clear. Well, this listener makes it seem like it was clear and that he refused the drugs, and that was his... Yeah. Well, I think that's a, you know, 
Yeah, I mean, I mean it's a argument of the margins because I just don't have the information, so I could just be flat out wrong. But what I'm tempted to say now is that I think that's one of those things where it serves as a litmus test. You know, there's probably some readers who come away from it thinking that you know society is screwed. That's why there was a jet fighter streaking overhead in the year of Glad. And then there's going to be other readers who think like, no, actually everything was fine. You know, they get to the end and it's too late because actually steeply and the good guys already recovered the Sami's dot and everything's going to be okay. And that just says something about you as the reader, not something about the actual reality uh, of the plot that DFW conceived. And that same type of, uh, type of an argument, I think, probably applies to this. Maybe you read it and think like, well, Gately caved, uh, you know, because you're a pessimist or because you're sort of a realist about the science of how serious his medical injuries were. Or maybe you read it and think like, no, he resisted. And that's part of his hero's journey, because that's the way that you look at this character, you know, and the story. Um, and it's saying something about you. Yeah. Well, I guess I was just taking my experience working with those kinds of people. Yeah, right. And Wallace was intimately And how this familiar. is like a, you know, a pretty common dilemma that they come up against. So, mm-hmm. you know, when I was reading that, I was just thinking like, yeah, well, if he does. And his sponsor is like laughing at him, right? Yeah. I mean, his sponsor is there. Maybe he imagined his sponsor is there, like one of the crocodile guys. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it just kind of seems like a non-issue to me. Yeah. That part that was that was great, and I think you did a good job of highlighting how great that is uh, in your video. Just that, like, you know, it's it's the perfect encapsulation of the kind of wisdom, the nature of the the, the style of the wisdom that AA contains, uh, and that that viewpoint on the world contains, which is that like exactly when you feel like everything is at its most serious and you need the most help, that's exactly the time when the person who is designated to help you is going to laugh uh, in your face. Um, in a loving way that is meant to reinforce to you that this, this isn't about anything other than you and your choice. And, you know, what can I do to help? Um, and, uh, and that that laughter has like this deeper, like beyond, you know, regular wisdom, sort of like extra insight into it, uh, by being just sort of simple and absurd. It's almost, uh, it's almost Zen. It is Zen, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was really cool. And and that kind of that, that, you know, this whole idea of like this wisdom that exists inside of addiction and recovery and, and what people go through and, and the thoughts they need to think and the process they need to go through to deal with recovery was, you know, a personal thing for DFW, who himself struggled with addiction. And, and Tim, the, the viewer, goes on to say in this email, um, who was he, Gately, a hero too, presumably like Wallace himself. Gately's biggest hurdle at AA had been its required surrender to a higher power. He did what he was told he had to do, though, and prayed for help from a god that he couldn't comprehend. The novel then ends with him sober at St. Elizabeth's, mother of John the Baptist, getting submerged in an ice bath because of his fever, symbolically baptized and cleansed of sin, at which point he remembers when he'd been left on the beach by his godfather eight years earlier with the tide way out. So not submerged, not baptized, and not cleansed of sin. After which, of course, he'd returned unsaved to burglary and narcotics. For better or worse, it's obviously a profoundly religious story. But, but again, how is it connected to the rest of the novel? Interesting paragraph. So now uh, Tim reveals himself to be a tradcath. Uh, <laughs> just, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean... AA is religion for somebody like D. 
DFW or Don Gately uh, in a specific kind of sense. You know, that's like a, a kind of gloss on that where, yeah, what you need to do to be successful and to be a participant in that community is to give over the part of yourself that can't accept what it has to say um, in a way that is is not a reasoning, that is beyond reasoning, um, that is, you know, submission. Uh, and that through that sort of submission, um, you find freedom. You know, I think Catholics say something like that, but alcoholics also say something like that. Yeah, well, it sounds like the end of Job, too. Mm. When God or somebody comes down and talks to Job, same sort of thing. I don't know my Job. What, what, what's the deal there? Uh, well, you know, I mean, Job is lamenting that all of his uh, you know, family died and everything was taken away from him. And, you know, supposedly God comes down and says, well, look at all these things you don't understand. Like, you know, you don't understand how a deer digests food or digests grass. You don't understand how stars move. I mean, there's lots of things you don't understand. So who are you to say that, th- like, you know, having this this hardship, who are you to say that this is bad or wrong or mm. not the right thing for you to experience? Like, you have no idea. Yeah, interesting. Kind of sounds like the same thing. Like, there's this thing that you can't comprehend and you just have to submit to it. Um. But I do that too. I mean, you know, my higher power is reality, I think. So I kind of get where like these guys are coming from. Like, yeah, I, I have to submit to reality. And whatever I want or don't want, it's almost immaterial. I just have to like look at the facts and that's it. And I don't have to like it. You know, I I could like it. It's almost immaterial. You know, so I, I kind of get what, what, what that is. Yeah. Yeah. Job sounds like a very relevant story to this based on what you're saying. It sounds kind of cool. You know, I have this part of myself, obviously, which longtime listeners will will know is there, which is saying like, well, yeah, but now we do understand how a deer's digestion work. And in fact, we understand precisely how and why the stars move. Um, You can keep moving that question backwards. You know, there's still like fundamental principles of, you know, particle physics or astrophysics that are not actually fully clear and there's always more to learn and there's always a deeper question. So there's that. But also there's this other thing, which is, you know, we're talking about the other thing here. We're, we're talking about the fact that, um, th- th- that you need to transcend this sort of analytical uh, explanatory uh, sort of look at everything. Uh, by the way, that's represented really well in the book by, uh, isn't he named Jeffrey Day, the lawyer who's in Ennett House and who just like has like the smart answer to everything and like knows exactly why, you know, he doesn't really need to be there and how maybe this is good for other people, but it doesn't apply to him and blah, blah, blah. And that's exactly the role that he serves right. is, is to he's like the Reddit guy, like the Reddit yeah. debate guy inside of Ennett House. <laughs> he's, he's the well, actually guy. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, oh, wait, but that, yeah, no, that's the, me. <laughs> right. And I definitely give yeah, into that. I relate with uh, that. Yeah, I've definitely been there. Although, you know, I try to, you know, meditate and do stuff like that. And obviously it's possible to to glimpse the other side of all these things. And, and that's what DFW is talking about. And if you're somebody like Hal, um, you need that. You don't have it. You were never raised to have it. Your parents didn't allow you to have it. Uh, yeah. And you find yourself essentially becoming a zombie because you need it so badly uh, and, and, and you can't get it. And that's that's a different aspect of this book is is Hal's story, 
Um, but anyway, we'll get there separately. Um, okay. Continuing on with the email here. Um, for better or worse, it's obviously a profoundly religious story, but again, how is it connected to the rest of the novel? Simply start with who told it. From its use of single quotation marks from beginning to end, I disagree with that, by the way, um, but I, I just think that's a typographical choice, but uh, let me not interject too much. <laughs> from its use of single quotation marks from beginning to end, the entire novel has to be a single un uninterrupted quote from a single character. And the only character that could have been is James and Condenza's Wraith. He'd begun the story purportedly trying to communicate with his son, Hal. By the end, however, it emerges that his only goal was to save Joel, sacrificing both Hal and Gately to do so. It was Gately's recollection on the final pages, too late, that made James understand his own sin, then reframed the story as his own redemption. There had been increasing allusions to Gately as a Christ figure, and by its end, of course, he'd become James's savior. Note that neither James nor Hal believed in God. Wallace had said that the novel was about America abandoning spiritual principles, something exemplified by the corporate sponsorship of years replacing their number since Christ's birth. It's full of religious quotes and symbolism, most of them Christian. The truth will set you free, for example, is what Jesus had said to the Jews who'd believed in him. Okay, very dense. This is a dense analysis. It's interesting to think about things from this perspective. Um, and I would definitely need some convincing. Um, but do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, you know, it's kind of like when I hear stories about, or like conspiracy theories about how there's like uh, alien bases on the moon. Like I enjoy hearing about it, but I don't believe it. Mm -hmm. So that when you say that <laughs> James and Condenza's Wraith uh, narrated the whole novel, it's like that's that's a cool idea. And I understand if if you go into it thinking that you'd probably it'd probably be interesting to read it from that perspective. But yeah, I don't just kind of seems random to me. It says something to me about the book itself. I mean, there's something about this book where it's inspiring people to look at it in all of these different ways, you know, shake up the snow globe and, and, you know, over and over again and, and see how, how it falls. And uh, I myself have done that, you know, I've read this thing multiple times at different levels of, yeah, sort of uh, detail orientation and so on and so forth. And, um, I have to admit, I, th this never dawned on me. I never looked upon it that way. Um, I don't think the single quotes thing uh, really evinces this. It's it's interesting. DFW is a pedant, and he liked you know grammar, and presumably you know he would also be interested in an accurate you know typography and punctuation and stuff. So I could picture it being the sort of thing that on a very cute level uh, he could you know maybe want to do. Um, but the specific idea that the story, the Wraith is telling this whole story, and by the end, he decides that it's some sort of sacrificing uh, of of Gately and Hal to save Joel. I just, there's not enough pieces there to really make me see why that's true. Um, in what sense did the Wraith sacrifice Hal? Maybe I'm missing something. Uh, I would love to know more about that, but this is an interesting lens, a Randy lens, if you will. Uh, through which to look at the book. Yeah, I mean, I think for me to really digest this idea, like I would need uh, this listener on the show talking mm -hmm. to us about it. I think the reason why questions. I think the reason why most of the 
symbolism in the book is you know, religious symbolism in the book is Christian is just because DFW was a, you know, Anglo white male. What, what else was he, you know, that that's, that's his milieu. Yeah. Those um, are so touchstones. I mean, it I... doesn't exactly surprise me. Um, and, and the thing about, um, Wallace saying that the novel was about America abandoning spiritual principles. I don't know about that. I would like to maybe see an exact quote. Maybe there is one. I mean, he was asked about this book a lot. He said a lot of different things about it. But the thing that always stuck with me about it, uh, from what he would say, like on his press tours and stuff, was that it was a book about loneliness and that it was about being American. Um, I don't know specifically how much he focused on spirituality specifically uh, being an aspect of it. Uh, And this idea that corporate sponsorship exemplifies a loss of spiritual principles is something that I, not to get too political here, but I I reject that on its face. I think that Christianity is part, part and parcel of our commercialized, you know, economic capitalistic orientation. Uh, It very much empowers uh, that viewpoint. Just ask, you know, Alan Dulles, you know, (laughs) one of the most Christian guys who ever existed and also one of the biggest, uh, you know, whatever, perpetrators of of the system that is institutionalized now. Not a real Christian, Derek. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's 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 like not a real communist. The the no true Scotsman argument or whatever you call it. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of Reddit debate lords. um, (laughs) Anyway, but this is a super interesting insight. I in no way want to like denigrate this viewer, Tim, for sending this in. It's very interesting. I, I no, want to go I, read I the like book I like hearing new things. So yeah, it's fun from that perspective. Yeah, I, I want to go read the book again and think about this more. Okay, let, we can finish up this email here. The novel is structured as a fractal Sierpinski triangle composed of three independent addiction narratives. James and Condensas, uh, that would be wild turkey. Hal and Condensas, which would be weed and secrecy. Uh, I'm adding those flourishes, sorry. And Don Gately's, the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. James is the saved, Gately the savior, and Hal, as you said, is the sacrificial lamb. AA's symbol, of course, is a triangle within a circle. Anyway, I hope that clears things up for you, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think that's it for the the body of the email. Great stuff. Very interesting. I think I've heard of that. Like, what is a fractal Sierpinski triangle? I think I've heard of that in relation to infant ingest. Maybe I heard that from you before. I've heard it described as the the annular fusion, you know, cycle, which is itself described in the book. And that I buy that a lot because of the sort of meta-ness of it and the fact that they use that special circle symbol to delineate the, the chapters of the book, the fact that it, you know, it starts at the end and ends at the start. And, you know, there's a lot of different circularity uh, aspects of it. I'm not sure that I have ever landed on the triangle thing. The fractal Sierpinski triangle thing, uh, you, you can Google image search it. It's the thing where like, you, it's the Triforce from Zelda. You embed, uh, you know, four equilateral triangles inside of a bigger equilateral triangle, and you can continue doing that off into infinity. It looks really cool. I get that now. Yeah. Speaking of which, yeah. Tears of the Kingdom, great Zelda game, everybody. Whew. Did you finish? I mean, yes, I did. I beat it, but you can, you know, it's because of the nature of the game. You can keep doing stuff. Even it's after an you open beat world it. game. So, yeah. Yeah. You, you, basically, if you beat it, it just takes you back to your save game, like your last save point before you beat the game and you just like keep playing. So there's not a lot of payoff in beating it, but great game, though. Cool. Okay, well... So how is James the saved? In what sense is he saved? I don't get that. Yeah. 
So, so this would be a question that I would ask him if he was here. I, I guess I'm not asking you to answer it, but. Right. And in the previous paragraph, he said that Joel was the one that was, that we were intending to save. I don't know. I mean, again, I'm getting in, I'm getting bogged down in the actualities of what do we really think happened in the story? I mean, I think that, that Gately and Joel go on to live happily ever after. Am I, am I missing something there? I mean, she visits him in the hospital. Like, yes, they get abducted uh, at some point by the AFR and or John Wayne and have to dig up uh, JOI's head. But uh, my take on that is that somehow those things work themselves out, you know, steeply swoops in and saves them or something like that. Um, because after all, you know, in the year of glad Hal, zombified though he is, is, you know, back in his regular life applying for college. Um, and, you know, society seemingly is not utterly destroyed, although there is that fighter jet flying overhead, which why does he, why does he point that out specifically in that very spare year of glad chapter? You know, it, it seems very significant once you reread it again after finishing the book for the first time. I don't know. I would love to know what people think about that. The Brazen Heads podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. Well, what you left out here is in the last paragraph, he's, uh, this re- listener says he doesn't like when people say that infinite justice is open-ended. Mm. I don't know. It really seems open-ended to me. Like, there's pieces there, and, and you can, you know, deduce something that makes sense to you, but it's not totally open-ended. Like, it's completely subjective and completely up to your interpretation. But, yeah, I think what you're saying there is, like, there are clues and I take those clues to mean one thing in particular. In that way, mm-hmm. it is open-ended, right? Like, like there's different points on this on this spreadsheet. Now you can connect the dots to make a triangle, or you could connect the dots to make a, a pentagon or something. You know, whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe it's not as open-ended as some people say it is, but. I think just the fact that we're having this conversation kind of tells me that it is open-ended. Or or am I just too stupid to see how it actually is not open-ended? I mean, it's open-ended in the sense that there are questions you can ask about the book that we literally definitely do not know the answers to. Uh, in fact, if you'll indulge me for a second, I'm going through my notes here. The third time that I read the book... <laughs> um, I did this thing where I tried to basically take all of the events in the book and lay them out in chronological order, which is trickier than it would seem because you're obviously bouncing around all over the place. And I wanted to try to develop an understanding of what really happened. And of course, when you're doing it chronologically and then you get to, you know, year of the dependent adult undergarment where most of the book happens, it's like, man, it's really hard to like document all this stuff step by step. But one of the things that I did during that read through of the book was I tried to just write down the open questions. I mean, this, if you're going to call this book open-ended, like these are the things that you would want to know the answers to, uh, in order for it to be, uh, a closed, a closed case. Um, so I wrote down, what's the significance of call it something I ate. In other words, the mold story, the mold story gets told twice, uh, in the book. And there are people who have argued convincingly, um, that actually that mold is related to, the chemical compound that's in DMZ, uh, and that maybe that's the reason why Hal became zombified, and so on and so on. That's just a that's a flat out open question in the book. It's just what the hell happened to Hal 
You know, what situation is he in in Year of Glad and why? Uh, is it just because he continued that downward trajectory that he seemed to be on? Uh, you know, at the year in the year of the dependent adult undergarment, where he's you know he's drooling into this NASA cup, he's trying to quit weed, he's sort of <laughs> zombieing out a little bit too much, or, or did something pivotal, you know, a tipping point occur that we didn't see uh, in the pages of the book? Maybe when the AFR you know raided the ETA tournament. Uh, another question I wrote down. What's with Hal's, quote, surreal memory of a steamed lavatory mirror with a knife sticking out of the pane? Again, that gets mentioned twice in the book, once at the very beginning and once at the very end. Uh, it has to mean something. Um, how did Pemulus know to go to the Antitoise for DMZ? How does the topic of DMZ first arise at ETA? We don't know the answer to that. DMZ is this pivotal you know, substance, the whole plot sort of hinges on it in certain respects. Uh, and I guess what we know about it is that Pemulus got it from the Antitoise, but, but how? Why? Why were they even thinking about it in the first place? Um, how about the fact that there's a part in the book where they mention that there are three secret AFR operatives inside of ETA? Um, who are they? You know, we know that John Wayne is one of them. We know that uh, Putrincor is one of them. Um, but who is the other one? Is it Avril? Uh, that that, that was going to be my first guess as you were saying that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just an open question. Okay, and then finally, the last one. I don't know if you remember this, but when things start getting really weird at the end of the book, there's this incident where Stice's head is stuck on the window at ETA. Uh, and when oh, they're yeah. trying to like help him out or whatever, Hal looks out the window and he sees somebody sitting in the snow uh, on on the bleachers. Um, and I think that maybe that is the wraith. I think there's something significant uh, about that as well. And then of course you have all of these like basic questions, the stuff that we've been talking about from the get go. You know, just what happened to Hal? What happened with the entertainment? What happened to Steeply? What happened to Marath? You know, we don't know any of this stuff. Um, so yeah, that, in that sense, I think it's very fair, circling back to the email, to just say that, yeah, this book is open-ended. But I think what you're saying is just that all of that stuff is the stuff that is intentionally engineered that way by this brilliant author to leave you thinking, to leave you with something to continue chewing on uh, almost addictively, uh, even after you're done reading it. Wow, so meta. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just totally meted out by all the meta-ness here. Yeah. I mean, the book is great. What else are you supposed to... <laughs> what are you supposed to say? Okay, so continuing on with that thread, you know, this the thing of, like, you know, the open questions, what are you left with? Uh, that's what you asked Tim. You know, you, you said, like, you know, what are these questions, right? You want to paraphrase kind of, like, the gist of the conversation you were having? Uh, what was it? I think it was no, something I, I like, know. oh, okay, I got the quote here. I have the quote. He says, um, sorry, the whole novel is like this. You just have to write, ask the right questions. And then you asked him, like, okay, so what are the right questions? So there's actually, are there actually three emails here? Yeah, I guess. Holy moly. Okay, yeah. Um yeah, maybe we can continue this thread like later on because we're not even going to have time to talk about Twin Peaks. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get back to this. That's fine. I, yeah. I didn't even look at the other emails that much, so we will do that. 
Okay, great. Yeah, there's lots of good uh, there's lots of good IJ content to spelunk here. And if you're in email contact with this guy, yeah, you should I guess let him know that we're hashing it out on the podcast. But uh, that's good stuff. And uh, yeah, man, it's really getting me psyched to just read this book again. I was actually going back and listening to my audiobook the other night, uh, just like sampling little bits of it. It still holds up. I still think it's pretty good. I could definitely do a better job, but I mean, I think it's good. I think it's acceptably good. I'm, I'm proud of myself for that thing. If anyone's interested in hearing home home-brewed indie uh, <laughs> non-commercial Infinite Jest audiobook that I just did because I wanted to, that was my second time reading through the book. Um, you can email us, thebrazenheadspodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, like some guys will brew their own beer. Derek will <laughs> record his own audio book. Yeah, that's it's like your version of that. That's, that's, I think that's funny that you said it. That, that way, is literally sure. how, yeah, that is very analogous to that. And I, as I'm very proud to say, I do know at least one real person who has actually listened to the whole audio book all the way through. So thanks, Younger. You're, you're a good friend. <laughs> I haven't listened to it all the way through. <laughs> Yeah, you give it to your mom. She's like, oh, okay. Oh, my God. She could not give less of a shit. I remember, like, talking to my parents about, like, the Fountainhead, like, just way back then. And even that, they were like, I don't know. That's over my head. Like, let alone Infinite Jest. We're just going to leave all that alone. Let's talk about sports. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I feel you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. Twin Peaks. So, what? The greatest... Twin Peaks episode of all time, or what's going on? Yeah, here? well, you know what? It's so funny because last week I was talking about how, oh yeah, the season debut uh, of season two of Twin Peaks. It, like you could argue that it's like almost kind of like the best Lynch film because it's this like feature length thing directed by David Lynch. When I was saying all of that stuff, I think I was conflating my memories of this episode as well because the very next episode episode two which is normal length it's not feature length but it's a normal length episode of twin peaks it's also directed by lynch and it's i mean it's just as good it's insanely good uh so yeah well we're gonna we're gonna go through our notes on that um the log lady intro she says as above so below the human being finds himself or herself in the middle there uh Oh, sorry, the human being finds himself or herself in the middle. There is as much space outside the human proportionately as inside. Stars, moons, and planets remind us of protons, neutrons, and electrons. Is there a bigger being walking with all the stars within? Does our thinking affect what goes on outside us and what goes on inside us? I think it does. Where does cream corn fit into the workings of the universe? What really is creamed corn? Is it a symbol for something else? That's your classic log lady intro. It's good stuff there. That's that kind of like, you know, that's like a Joe Rogan point. Like, Jamie, did you hear that like the space in between, like the particles inside of an atom is yeah. like just as much as the space between the planets <laughs> right, in the universe? Exactly. It's true, though. It's kind of crazy. There's a lot of... Well, oh, geez. I mean, now that she's, I didn't know that was her intro. Now mm-hmm. I'm wondering how that fits in this episode. Yeah. Well, there's cream corn. Okay. Well, that. no, I think I do know how it fits. I mean, when Briggs delivers the message, maybe yes. that's what that references. That's right. I mean, one of the things that happens in this episode is that, you know, we really crack open the can on the true interspace or whatever you call it uh, interstellar like supernatural aspects of of the black lodge and and twin peaks the town so 
yeah, there is something happening without that matches what's happening within as we emotionally grapple with with this tragic murder. Um, okay, shall we jump into it? We shall. Great, great intro scene. You got my boy, Albert, um, buddying up with Coop, you know, talking business, but also caring for his friend and colleague, Cooper. Um, and all the while in the background, you have this beautiful barbershop quartet just like basically singing little Badalamenti-esque chords very quietly uh, in, in the background. Um, and you can see them in the shot, too. You have these four guys dressed up like goofballs with like, you know, uh, straw boater hats and stuff uh, singing barbershop. But it's done in a very uh, vibey way. Uh, and they're also smoking uh, while they sing, which is very, uh, that's a Lynch flourish also. Also in the background, you have Asian mafia guy staring at him. Yeah, that's right. We don't know what the deal is with that guy. The, the extra that they took from Rush Hour too. Yeah, get me, get me the most stereotypical, <laughs> like mean faced looking Asian guy you possibly can. Yeah, triad guy or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ponytails, thick back hair. <laughs> Going back to that supernatural thing, you know, they're talking about the case. You know, Albert's joking around about the fact that you know they did an autopsy on Jock Renault when he's like doing the Jaws thing of like, oh yeah, we found a license plate inside of his belly. You know, whatever. <laughs> that was pretty funny. But basically, the the takeaway from that is that they're not going to be able to identify the killer uh, of Jacques Renault. There's just it was like uh, forensically, there's no crack in that case. They're they're just going to get away with it. Um, and then Cooper says, "Albert, my ring is gone. Um, they're one minute gone, the next." And if you remember from the previous episode, you know the 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 giant asked for the ring, um, and Cooper thought that it was just part of the unreality of his dream. But then when he saw that it was really gone, it's like something. Something extra has happened here. And and Cooper says, I'm glad you're with us, Albert. We need the very best. And Albert tries to ask, you know, Cooper how he's doing. And they get kind of, you know, almost friendly for a second. But, you know, that that can't last. And then the final thing in the scene is that we get our first Wyndham Earl reference. So, yeah, that's... Uh, Dude, he yeah. escaped from an insane asylum. Yeah. What? Yep. <laughs> you can't do that. Well, Michael Myers did it. <laughs> That's so stupid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your your ex partner went crazy and he escaped from an insane asylum. It's just like, yeah, right, dude. Get ready, guys. Get ready for season two. We're planting seeds. Yep, exactly. Uh, next, we have Donna doing the Meals on Wheels, and she goes to Mrs. Tremont's house. Mrs. Tremont is um, Happy Gilmore's uh, grandma. Uh, yep. <laughs> that's the most yep. important thing to note here. Um, if you're born in 1982 to 1984, she, she was the grandma that you saw. That's in what movies. she means to you. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, and so Donna's delivering a meal to this bedridden lady, and uh, her creepy Lynchian son is sitting off in the corner. And he says, "Things can sometimes things can happen just like this." And he snaps his fingers, and then she freaks out about there being creamed corn on her plate. Um, she says, "Do you see creamed corn on this plate?" And then when she says it a second time, it's gone. And it's not just like it's gone off the plate, like with a little puddle left behind. It's gone with a bare, clean, white plate uh, left behind like it was never there. And the little magician grandson is holding the creamed corn uh, in his hand. Very creepy. Um, not that we know the meaning of any of that, but, you know, it's it's just like, uh, you know, the man from another place. It's just like the dream in the red room. You know, this is... 
we're getting our classic Lynch stuff here. And well, uh, the well, old I, lady... I think the meaning behind it is like there's some eerie magic seeming stuff going on, and I, we're right. going to get a dose of that later. Yeah, definitely. So when it comes to cracking the case of this murder, it's not going to be of this world. Yeah, that's right. Although I thought this was a reference to, I thought their room, and this was made more clear, maybe even the Twin Perfect video, but also in uh, Fire Walk With Me, that their room was some kind of entrance to maybe not the Black Lodge, but something like that. Yeah. Isn't that right? Yeah. So like, doesn't stuff just get weird and, and the laws of physics kind of reverse on themselves and is that why harold smith is such a weird loner guy because yeah, he's I mean, like affected by that because he's right next door oh that's an interesting point yeah it could be i mean once we see firewalk with me we're going to learn that mrs tremond is the one who gave laura the framed photo which she hangs up in her room you know this would look nice on your wall um and when laura hangs that uh that up on her wall that is sort of the portal through which she's, you know, Bob crosses over into her world and vice versa. I mean, I, I, I don't know what you think about this, but do, do you think that, do you think that Bob ever raped Laura prior to that? Like, do you, uh, like, do you think that Mrs. Tremond like introduced Bob into Laura's life by giving her that photo or do you think that like it was already going on and she is just one of these people sort of like the giant who like lives on the fringes of these worlds and was just trying to do something was just like intervening somehow like maybe she thought it would be helpful to Laura or something Well my understanding is that Bob was yeah raping her way before Right, that's kind of what I think too. So I, I'm not—I don't know that Mrs. Tremont is like culpable for this, but she plays some sort of pivotal role in like things coming to a head in Firewalk with Me, whatever that is. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, it's weird. I guess when we get get around to rewatching Firewalk with Me, I'll think about that a little bit more carefully. But then, so they they talk about Laura for a second and. And Mrs. Tremont basically says she doesn't know her, but she says you should talk to Mr. Smith next door. So we're going to meet him in the next episode. And finally, the kid, as she's leaving, the creepy magician kid says, J'ai un homme solitaire, which is French for I have a lonely soul. Okay. Yeah. I thought I think that I think the kid saying that is just uh, in reference to Harold Smith. I don't think it's like any sort of like special magical incantation. I think it's just saying like, you know, there's this, there's this shut-in living next door, and there, there's something about him. Yeah. It's just a little again a flourish. Okay. Um, okay. Next, Cooper and Truman go to visit Ronette in the hospital. There's a hilarious bit where they have to adjust the chairs first before they can sit down. Um, yeah. Again, just one like of those classic things, and, and very respectful of this this girl who was, uh, you know, possibly raped or whatever. Right. Well, was she raped? I guess not. I don't know. She just I don't had know. sex with Jacques and uh, Leo. Yeah, but again, going on this twin perfect theory, I guess the thing is that she was essentially supposed to be murdered by Bob, but there was this sort of like brutally beautiful sort of sacrifice that happened where like 
Laura was sort of seeking out, you know, a means of trying to put up a fight and put a stop uh, to this evil. And so there was a way in which she, possibly with the help of the one-armed man, was able to sort of, like, save Ronette's life and get herself killed instead, essentially. Um, and, yeah, that, that's something very subtle in the in the twin perfect analysis of the ending of Firewalk with me, which I didn't totally get on my own without first watching that video, but it has to do with, like, him throwing the ring into Laura and just, yeah, it's, it gets subtle, different, different ring than the one that Cooper is missing. It's, it's complicated. Anyway, <laughs> um, at the end of that scene, they show her the sketch of Bob, um, as described, you know, by Sarah Palmer when she had her vision. And, um, that's another thing about this, you know, Twin Peaks being a series is like stuff from four episodes ago is finally coming up again. it's like, why didn't they follow up on that right away? Why are we just autopsying Jacques now? Like, well, you know, all this, like, why were they searching Jacques' apartment like four different times in season one, as we talked about before? <laughs> it's just, I don't know. It's the chronology is yeah, a little bit hard. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But at the end of that scene, it it's okay. yeah, it's best to just not yeah, worry about it. They show run at the sketch of Bob and she starts freaking out, of course, because this is the man. This is their attacker. Um, she starts saying train. And then at the very end of that scene in one of those like scary Lynch things, the, the light shatters. And on the soundtrack, they make this sort of like weird, like animal, like grunting noise. Uh, like it's gotten very especially spooky um, when she sees Bob. Um, okay, then Ben and Jerry are figuring out their scam. They have the two different ledgers for the mill that has been burned down, and they have a little funny bit about which one they're going to burn, you know, which one helps their scheme the most. Um, and there's no real conclusion to that. I mean, the purpose of the scene is to just catch you up, like remind you what these guys are up to. Um, but it has the great jerry horn line where he just we're at the end they're like well we have to burn something and so ben pulls out marshmallows and he goes ben where are those hickory sticks <laughs> great yeah great stuff this guy this this guy jerry horn whatever that actor's name is i mean between commando and twin peaks it's just this this guy had some great parts yeah that would that would be my goal if i was ever an actor is just to be a character actor like that yeah yeah he's so good Okay, um, we're at the Double R Diner. Andy is trying to put up flyers for the Wanted poster for Bob. You know, they decided since Ronette recognized him, they're going to start putting out flyers. And the flyer showing this sketch of Bob is going to be relevant uh, throughout this episode. Uh, Andy's got tape stuck all over him. It's a it's another funny bit, like when he sideshow bobbed himself in the previous uh, episode. <laughs> Yeah, and again, I mean, like when he sideshow bobbed himself, like, like the the amount of agility that would it take to get hurt like that is right. You know, it, it takes a lot. It's just like <laughs> you'd have to, it would be difficult to get yourself this wrapped up in this tape. Right. There's an unreality to help you. Yeah. There, there's an unreality everywhere. to the slapstick that makes you question like, wait, is this even slapstick or is like, what's, what the hell happened here? It's weird. Uh, and that's, yeah, that's definitely a, a cool style choice. Um, inside the diner, the log lady speaks, or the log specifically speaks through the log lady to Major Briggs and says, deliver the message. And we'll find out what that is later on. Um, back at the sheriff's station. And Norma admonishes the log lady for spitting her gum out. Yeah. Yeah. The but pitch does that gum. ever come up or is that the end of it? It doesn't really come up, although that was the log lady intro from the previous episode where she talks about how I chew pitch gum 
it can't be too runny, it can't be too hard, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and yeah, they also talk about that happy medium uh, as emblemized by the, the pitch gum uh, in the Twin Perfect video. So it's, it's just a theme. I don't know what so it exactly what's means. What's pitch gum? Pitch is like a hardened sap from a tree, isn't it? I think. Oh. Yeah. Some, it's something to do with wood, like everything in Twin Peaks. Okay. Um, Andy reveals to Lucy that he uh, went to a uh, sperm donation clinic and found out that he was sterile. Uh, so he's trying to confront her about, like, well, why would you be pregnant if I'm sterile? Uh, and there's no conclusion to that yet, but pretty soon... Uh, we're going to get uh, Richard from Dick from the department store is going to show up and, and he's a great character. We'll get to him later on. Well, dude, from that scene, uh, you're glossing over too much. Uh, first of all, why before that is Lucy annoyed by a fly? Yeah, the fly buzzing around. Yep. What is that supposed to mean? And also when Andy says that he donates sperm, I mean, that's how he found out that he was sterile because he went to a, a sperm bank. Mm-hmm. He says, I like to donate sperm because I like wells. Mm-hmm. What's that? No, he says it's a joke. He says whales. He's like, I, I of course, it said, it said like a call went out for sperm donations. And of course I signed up because it's my civic duty. And I like whales, sperm whales. Oh, I thought he was saying wells. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, it went right over your head. It's such a highbrow joke that it went right over your head. <laughs> yeah, dude, you gotta, you gotta slow down for me. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, next thing that happens at the sheriff's station is that Hank is there. Hank needs to sign in at the sheriff's office, uh, as part of his parole. Uh, and we just get a little like, you know, cold interaction between Hank and the cops. Uh, Sheriff Truman hates Hank. And we find out that Hank used to be a bookhouse boy before he turned to the life of crime. Um, not much more there for now. And as I keep Uh, saying, dude, a sweet twin Peaks sequel. Uh, series is the Bookhouse Boys. Yeah, that would be good, right? You get to see like uh, James getting up to some crime fighting adventures. That would be nice. Also, more Hank Buck symbolism. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Did you're you right. You notice when Hank signs, uh, signs in passive aggressively, he signs with a, an H, a big H. Yeah, right. Yeah, you can tell he's like doing this big gesture across the entire page. <laughs> Man, that's a good point you made just then about the, the buck, because like we saw that shot when he was like meeting, having his spooky meeting with Josie, yeah. where like Hank had those like giant antlers like framed over his head in that like Dutch angle type shot, and it made him look like he had devil horns. But then he's in Truman's office, and Truman has just this like comically small, like he went to Target and bought like a you know deer mount. Uh, plaque to put on his wall or something and hank derides him for it he says that's a a real cute buck you have there sheriff truman um like it's not nearly as evil as the one that i was just you know embodying uh that's good that's a good parallel there um dude am i making good observations here that's i know i had a good one last time and i feel like no that's that's a good ass observation yeah okay and then the last thing that happens in that scene is that ben horn calls in to the sheriff's office uh, to report that Audrey has been missing for about two days. He's not bothered in the slightest, by the way. He's he's like joyfully... Yeah, it's like his, more like a civic duty. Like, look, I, you probably want to know. He's like, oh, my daughter's been missing by, for like, oh, about two days. Like, he doesn't give a shit at all. Uh, <laughs> sipping wine. Um, 
Jerry finds out that the life insurance policy that was in Josie's name for Catherine never got signed. That was that scene that I really loved, which we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, when the insurance agent and Catherine have that conversation where they're, you know, communicating without ever actually saying uh, out loud what's going on. Really good stuff. And, um, you know, Ben is just kind of taking it in stride. Like, look, you win some, you lose some. This, This mill fire finally happened. Catherine is gone. Leo's shot. You know, he was supposed to be dead, but Hank fucked that up. You know, we're taking the good with the bad here. You win some, you lose some. Uh, as Ben said, they're just trying to wriggle their way through, you know, their scheme here with all of these events having occurred. And the other aspect of that is the Icelanders. You know, their goal here is to sell this property for a huge development project uh, with the Icelanders. So they decide, like, well, maybe we should give him a call. Uh, and while they're ringing him up, uh, Leland barges in with his, you know, white hair and everything all psyched up. Uh, and says, like, hey, I was just thinking, guys, maybe we should call the Icelanders. You know, it's just comical, you know, sort of overlap there. But it turns out that he already called them and told them about the fire, and they're getting cold feet, and they're all, you know, you know they're worried that Leland is going to screw the deal, basically. Um, finally, to conclude this long scene, um, as they're kind of jokingly, like, reprimanding Leland, like, you're going to screw all this up, like, let's send Leland on a vacation, blah, blah, blah. Leland sees the flyer with the police sketch of Bob uh, laying on the table, and he briefly recalls, like, I know this man. Uh, he lived next door to my grandfather's summer house on Pearl Lakes. Um, and we'll find out more about this later on, uh, but it's obviously going to be very significant that Leland knows who Bob is. Pearl Lake's weird. Did you try to look that one up? Mm-mm. Well, there's two Pearl Lakes in Colorado. Okay. One is a state park, so I don't think you'd be living inside a state park. Although I do think that people live inside Yosemite. Like, there are like people who live there. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, maybe. And then there's another Pearl Lakes down in southern Colorado. And I was looking at pictures of it online. It doesn't look like there's really too many houses around there. So Okay. I don't know. Yeah, there is no what, what Pearl. What is Pearl reference here? Yeah, there is no Pearl Lakes in Washington. So I think that's significant. There is a Pear Lake uh, in Washington, but it's seemingly kind of ridiculously remote. I don't think that anyone would have a cabin there. It's like barely a blip on Google Maps. But it is close to Stoquami, which is basically what Twin Peaks is. So... Maybe they saw Pear Lake and they decided to just turn it into Pearl Lakes. Just like my favorite example of that is there's down in uh, in uh, Long Beach, there's the Vincent Thomas Bridge. Uh, and in heat, they called it the St. Vincent Thomas Bridge because they just wanted to like tweak the name for the sake of the movie. It's like there's not a St. Vincent Thomas, but whatever. It's the St. Vincent Thomas Bridge. <laughs> uh, anyway, okay. Yeah. Um, Okay, what else do we got here? We're getting towards the end. Shelly is visiting Leo in the hospital. He is in a coma. Yeah, Doc Hayward tells her, like, yeah, there was a bullet lodged in his spine. We were able to remove it, but he's going to be in a coma. He's going to be, you know, housebound, and our only ally is time. There's really nothing else we can do. Um, and that'll come up again in a, in a couple scenes here. Um, some mysterious stranger calls the sheriff's station asking for Sheriff Truman. Well, then you see Leo open his eyes. Yeah. In the mirror. I mean, very, you know, uh, a soap opera-esque. Yep. Like, Calculon's back. One of those kinds of things. 
<laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, there's definitely some uh, soap opera stuff there. The way that they framed that shot so that you're seeing Leo via a mirror uh, throughout the whole you know, conversation between the doc and Shelly is is yeah staged very nicely there's a couple i mean that's just one of those things that lynch is great i mean he's great at everything how much am i gonna slurp david lynch on this podcast but one of the things that he does is you're not really even thinking about it but then all of a sudden you'll get this shot where you realize like everything you need to know for this entire scene is all encaptured uh, or encapsulated in one shot it's not a bunch of cuts or anything like that the same thing happens later on in the uh just you and i song the, the greatest rock song uh, in history, um, you're getting all of these shots back and forth showing everybody's faces as they evolve, you know, when they're singing the song. But there's actually one wide shot where you see the whole thing. You see the living room, you see James, and you see Donna and Maddie on the floor. Uh, and you even see, like, the microphones plugged into his Fender amp. And uh, it's just su such a fantastic, like, just photograph, you know, just to set up the camera that way. And uh, the shot of Leo in the hospital bed is kind of like that, too, just... Lynch rocks with that kind of stuff. Would that be cinematography, Derek? That would that would be cinematography, exactly. Um, but yeah, it's just it's a great it's a great shot. So I don't this do a episode's lot of... called Coma, and is it because Ryanette's in a coma and she's coming out of it, or because Leo's coming out of a coma? I mean, is this too obvious? Do I even have to ask? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. I just I'm making this a multimedia experience for you. I just put that picture into the Skype chat so you can see the picture that the shot that i'm talking about if you want to wow cool thanks um, yeah. yeah i like i should we should do that more often i never really but i i took a screenshot of that because i thought that that shot was so good but uh yeah it's funny it's the soap opera thing right it's like invitation to love it's like we're using comas as plot points in like at least three different storylines because the other one is going to be um um big ed's wife nadine you know it's not exactly a coma but it's it's the exact same thing it's a soap opera like bonk on the head medical condition you know memory type deal yeah why do they have a, like an old-timey microphone like from some radio guy from the 40s yeah well okay well let, let's get there let me fast there's forward. lots of crazy stylistic things going on yeah there. that 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 whole i mean that, just make it seem unreal i mean yes that's, exactly that's exactly that's the, exactly the point that i was going to make okay so let's get to that scene yeah it's it's definitely purposefully uh liminal uh, shall we say but okay so we got uh, a scary stranger calls into the sheriff station asking for Sheriff Truman and Lucy has to hang up on him on the phone. So you're left to wonder like, oh, was that Wendy Merle? You know what's going on here? Okay, next thing. Uh, Audrey is still at One-Eyed Jack's. Um, she breaks into Emery's room. Emery is the creep from the department store who, you know, funnels the girls into uh, the brothel. Um, and he's doing like some fetish thing. He's blindfolded. So she sneaks in and chokes him and gets him to... <laughs> give up everything that he knows. And he basically says, yeah, Laura, you know, knew about one eyed Jacks. Ben, you know, knew that she worked there. You know, he, he slept with her because he sleeps with all the new girls and Ben runs this place, which Audrey already knew, but you know, now she's hearing it confirmed, you know? Um, and Laura was so crazy, you know, when she was up for one weekend trying to work at one eyed Jacks, but she was so crazy and on drugs that they had to kick her out. Um, wow. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah, and what's uh, Emery up to? He's tied up mm -hmm. backwards on a lounger. There's a, there's a prostitute vacuuming, and he has woman's nail polish on his toenails. Yeah, and he sent somebody out to go get uh, ice cubes. Uh, yeah. And when she returns, he says, my snowman, or my, my frosty, my little snowman. I don't know. 
Dude, it's like at the end of The Shining. Yeah. And there's like just two furries going at it. Like that's just what happens when you've just had yeah. way too much sex. So you yeah. just got to start doing weird stuff. We got to do something. Yeah. Who who know? Yeah. That's a whole thing. You want to get into a real conspiracy. Forget about JFK. How about, how about the idea that Kubrick knew about like secret Hollywood sex cabals and that's what Eyes Wide Shut was all about. And he knew it even way back then with The Shining. And that's why they had to kill him. Uh, <laughs> that's what his daughter thinks <laughs> we'll his, talk daughter, about his daughter's friends with alex jones like she she's into it yeah i don't know she's like yeah they killed my dad i don't know we'll talk about that another day but but before we get there that's like elite like s plus level like conspiracy theorizing i'm not like personally ready for that yet but i am <laughs> reading this book about rfk right now called a lie too big to fail by lisa pease it's absolutely fantastic it's it's mind-blowing uh, and you know, the, she doesn't lay out of one specific solid theory, but RFK Jr. himself, the guy who's running for president now, does not believe that Sirhan killed RF his father. Um, and all of the witnesses said that Sirhan was in the front. The LA medical examiner who did the autopsy saw that RFK was shot from behind the ear. That was the shot that killed him from less than an inch away. And there were powder burns and tattooing behind his ear. I mean, it was literally impossible for Sirhan to have fired that shot. And the gun that they got off of Sirhan held eight bullets. They pulled eight bullets out of the victims because there were multiple gunshot victims. But then there was uh, door jams and the ceiling uh, of the, the room in which RFK was shot also all had bullet holes in them. Uh, and a lot of that evidence has since been destroyed. In other words, there were more bullets fired than fit uh, in Sirhan's gun. Um, the RFK assassination is at least as spooky uh, and unexplained uh, as the JFK assassination. So we'll just leave it at that for now. Well, and, well yeah, uh, I mean, I, I started watching the uh, Destiny Betrayed episode one. Mm -hmm. And yeah, his dad, RFK Sr., didn't think that, you know, the, the JFK story. Yeah. Uh, Oh, the first he was telling RFK the first phone call he made Junior. was to the CIA asking, "Did your guys do this?" Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. And, and they were guys there in the motorcade who said, "No, there were other gunmen there." Yep. And that's what they were telling RFK Senior. He never believed it. Yeah, he said that. Yeah, that the, that interview at the very beginning. I mean, look, RFK Junior has his own issues. Like we all understand, he's like a figure of intense media scrutiny right now. Like whatever. Leaving that aside, I think what he has to say about JFK and his own father is is pretty relevant. Like I'm going to take that with with a, a well, lot of yeah. How cool? I mean, how cool is that? There's that there's a potential presidential candidate in here that. Who's that saying this the, shit? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Like, forget about everything else. Yeah, and he says that that his father, RFK's most trusted advisors, were the guys who were in the limo behind uh, the JFK right. limo in the motorcade, and they were all World War II guys. They were all riflemen. You know, they knew how this shit worked, and they told him that day, yeah, there are multiple gunmen. We heard yeah. it. We were there. Uh, so, yeah, from the get-go, <laughs> he never thought that it was Lee Harvey Oswald, and nobody knew that until the 70s. That was all suppressed. It's yeah, insane. Dude. <laughs> so I know it's crazy. Dude, you know my favorite thing about RFK Jr. is he sounds decrepit. Mm -hmm. But compared to Biden, he sounds really good. Yeah, he still so sounds pretty good anything. to me. Yeah, you nobody can still, mentions it. It's yeah, fine. <laughs> you can still put him in a documentary. It works out fine. Oh, he's in his 60s still? Okay, yeah, it's, he's fine. Yeah, he's in good shape. Did you see that uh, picture of him like shirtless in jeans working out? <laughs> yeah, dude. I know I feel I feel stupid because I feel myself succumb to his political grandstanding because because that's what it is. 
It was like, get like the bro crowd voting for yeah, me. Like, he, oh, he's doing sweet incline with his shirt off and he's talking about taking TRT. Yeah, he's winning us over. This is my guy, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I really don't have much of a choice in the matter. Yeah, totally. Okay, we got to fly through the end of this episode. The one eye okay. jacks thing happens. Shelly and Bobby have a scheme where Shelly needs some convincing. She just wants Leo to go away. If she just talks to the cops and gives them a statement, you know, they're going to arrest Leo for setting the mill on fire and coma or not, he's going to be gone and out of her life and they'll be scot free. But Bobby is thinking of it from the other hand. He called up the, uh, the uh, disability people uh, and found out that they're going to make $5,000 a month if they bring Leo in for like home care. Uh, and that'll set them up for life so that Bobby and Shelly can have, you know, their life together. So they want to do that instead. Um, okay, back in Coop's room. Yeah, um, I really want to like Bobby, but he's just such a dumbass. Yeah, th- this is a dumbass move, big time. Like, did, did the, that connection you had with your father in the previous episode, did that mean nothing? Yeah, exactly. This, Shelly has already told you that I love you. Like, all you have to do is go away with her. You, you'll figure it out. You don't need the $5,000. Yeah, what are you doing? Yeah. You're going to have her... Yeah, it's so stuck. So dumb. Dude. He's a dumbass. Um, <laughs> so we dumb. love him. We love him, but he's a dumbass. That's a fun alternate reality. Like he wouldn't even be in Twin Peaks anymore in season three, and neither would Shelley. She wouldn't be uh, dating this coke dealer, you know, magician uh, Balthazar Getty, uh, the super dangerous guy. When we get to season three, but anyway, that's a whole different story. Um, okay, we're back in Coop's room. He still hasn't seen that there's a note under his bed. Major Briggs shows up at the door and gives him the message from deep space. Fantastic scene. You know, you got Major Briggs and Cooper hanging out with each other, two insanely weird, like, you know, spiritual warriors uh, conversing. Yeah. That's that's it's what we were waiting to see. Exactly. So Major Briggs basically says, I'm not allowed to tell you what I do. And Cooper's like, as a fellow employee of the federal government, I understand completely. And he says, but one of the things that I do is I monitor these deep space listening stations. We get signals from outer space, and most of it is gibberish. However, right at the time when you were shot, uh, it cohered into a meaningful signal, and it said, the owls are not what they seem. And then later on in that morning, it said, Cooper, Cooper, Cooper. Uh, And again, linking back up with the ring thing from before and linking up with that log lady intro, now we're seeing that this is really becoming a thing where the supernatural is, or the, the stuff that's beyond our understanding is really playing a real role uh, in, in this case. Um, there's going to be one more scene at the end of this episode, let's just dismiss with it real quickly, where uh, Cooper has like another dream that basically just rehashes a lot of the stuff we know already. There's a vision of Bob, there's the owls are not what they seem, there's the giant, etc. doesn't really matter that much, but it, it finally ends with Audrey calling Cooper in real life, in reality, not in the dream. Uh, Audrey has broken away uh, and grabbed a phone inside of One-Eyed Jacks and calls Cooper asking for help. Um, but Blackie and Emery catch her because, you know, she was just choking out Emery the last time we saw her. And apparently after she let him go, they decided to gang up on her. Probably a good idea. So um, that's that's where we're going next is the, you know, we have to go save Audrey. Okay, finally, the thing that I glossed over, the thing that we were mentioning earlier is... We have this scene that means seemingly nothing uh, where James, Maddie, and Donna are in the living room um, of the Palmer's house, you know, where, where Donna is staying or where Maddie is staying, uh, performing a song, performing James's original song, Just You and I Together Forever in Love. Good yeah, song. Donna really nails the subtle, I'm might be creaming my pants face yeah that's a that's a it's a great song 
Um, Mixed with some jealousy in there. Yeah, James. I think that kind of gets her going. Yeah, James is a heartthrob, and uh, you know they're making they're making. Um, James's pouty lips could not be any more pouty. Yeah, um, it, it is the platonic form of pouty lips. That's right. Yeah, he's out Jason Priestleying Jason Priestley. <laughs> totally. Uh, and um, and, and while as the song goes on, and it's you know interminable. It's this again. This is a David Lynch thing. They're gonna play this whole three minute song. It's like the you know Jorando scene in Mulholland Drive. <laughs> and those uh, are the only lyrics. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's yeah. Lynch wrote that song, and it's you know it's definitely his style. It's it's the that repetitive uh, drone with the sort of like uh, what do you call it like rockabilly influence. Uh, it's very interesting, but um, it has all these aspects to it, as you said before that make it intentionally unreal. Like it's not realistic or believable that this would be music that James would write or that these kids would feel emotional about just in exactly the same way as when at the very beginning of twin peaks, when Audrey plays the jukebox uh, in the double R and is like entranced uh, by the music that plays. It's like the music that's playing is not music that anyone, it's not normal music. It's not something for people of a normal uh, culture and and that's part of the whole like delicious unreality of it. He's also bad at faking the guitar, right? Like he he doesn't know how to play guitar, the actor, and like the way that he's faking it, like he's not fretting the chords in a way that would make it sound like what you're hearing on the soundtrack. And then of course to make it ultimately unreal, the bass and drums come in. Like he plays the you know the intro to the <laughs> song, and then all of a sudden a full band comes in uh, and is playing the song, uh, and it has this wild delay on the vocal you know we're like it, it like re, you know it echoes um which is a very like rockabilly type of thing you know you listen to any of those sort of like old like elvis crooner songs or whatever they always would do this kind of vocal effect but again it's like that that's unexplained it's not in the reality of that living room it's in the surreality of you know lynch's filming of it um so yeah i don't it's just really cool it's just you know it's you obviously laugh at that scene the first time you see it because it's silly. Like, what the hell is this? It's silly. Uh, but it's very bold and cool and makes sense in its own nonsensical way uh, inside of Twin Peaks. Dude, there's a whole second season soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And it's on there. Mm-hmm. Why is this not loaded up on my Spotify right now? Yeah, and the song comes back in season three uh, as well. Yeah, there, I mean, there's oh, yeah, so much... There's so much insanely good music in Twin Peaks. Uh, it kind of makes sense that they had a, like an actual musical number, you know, in every episode of season three because music is such an important part of the show. Not all of those songs totally succeed. I really love some of them, but some of them are kind of duds or whatever. But for what it's worth, in my opinion, the absolute best thing of all of the music in Twin Peaks is um, the the theme to Firewalk with Me, the stuff that plays over the intro to Firewalk with Me. Um, which if you haven't heard it recently, cue it back up. It has like the saxophone in it. It's the stuff that plays before the TV gets broken uh, at the very beginning of Firewalk with me. It's insane. It's so vibey. RIP to Angelo Badalamenti. There is one plot thing that happens here, which is that Donna gets her phone call from Harold Smith, just kind of arranging a meetup. But you notice like the way that that plays out is that she James is you know watching her because she's run away upset you know because James was making eyes at Maddie and there's a jealousy thing happening like you said and so when she gets that phone call she purposefully plays it like without explaining anything to James like who is this guy you're gonna go meet up with him tomorrow like you know what's going on and then Maddie has a vision of Bob 
coming into the living Dude, room. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, and creepily. Well, I repressed it because it's so freaking scary. Yeah, it's yeah. creepy. He's like creepily climbing over the couch and approaching her, and yeah, she screams and freaks out. It's it's a vision that makes her terrified, very similar to the thing that Sarah Palmer experienced previously. Um, so yeah, something is not right with Bob inside of that house. We made it through. Yeah. So the message that Cooper received when he was having that dream from the giant that somehow got caught up in the deep space, whatever frequency that that uh, Major Briggs was. Yeah. You know. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the giant... So is the giant God? I mean, the giant literally said... The owls are not what they seem, right? He said three things. He said there's a man yeah. in a smiling bag, which we got answered in the previous episode because we saw the body bag hanging in the, the morgue at the hospital. The second thing he said is the owls are not what they seem, and this got answered or at least addressed or whatever brought up in this episode. The third thing that he said is without chemicals, he points, which we're going to find out about later on. We haven't learned that one yet, but it's, it's coming up soon. So... The thing about the owls are not what they seem is that the giant literally said those words. And then at that same time, uh, they appeared in Major Briggs's, uh, you know, interstellar, you know, radio traffic or whatever. And if you go off of what we wind up learning later on in season three, this idea that the giant is really this character called the fireman. Um, I think this all jibes. I think this all goes back to this idea that you know, really what the fireman is, is one of the sort of, you know, b b b police officers, for lack of a better word, the, 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 the order keepers in the world of the sort of collective unconscious, you know, the purple world uh, that, that we float through uh, in, in Twin Peaks season three. And so he's... Yeah, it's like a very Gnostic worldview. Like, there's good angels, there's yes. demons. He'd be one of the good angels. Yes, yes. And he's real. He's actually part of reality. You know, it's not what we understand, but it intersects with our reality. Just how, just like how, you know, there's portals in season three that intersect with our reality. Or, or how, you know, Glastonbury Grove is a, is a you know, intersection between the Black Lodge and, and the real world of Twin Peaks. and. And all that stuff. And just exactly the same way is like if the giant appears and is communicating with Cooper, th that's detectable. It has a physical, you know, reality. It's not just metaphysical, uh, and it's it's in these radio waves. So, yeah, I'm sure that's you know, if you're the twin perfect guy, I'm sure you can really go deeper with that, and you can relate it to you know electricity, you know, and the fact that there's a whole thing here about the sort of like radiation of ideas through the air, you know, via airwaves. And, and that's like also the Rancho Rosa logo, you know, that appears at the end of all of the season three episodes with the static and blah, blah, blah. It's all thematic. All right. Let us know what you think. I mean, look, if, if you guys, you know, email us something about Twin Peaks, we'll just probably read the whole thing. Yeah. Like I was doing today. I got a lot more that, to read from this that's guy. That's how we do it. Yeah. We got so yeah, the Brazenheads podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, that's right. We got some more good season two stuff coming up soon. Uh, it's going to stay good for a little while still, um, and then it's going to get really good. Um, exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Once once James runs away and and meets Evelyn, it's going to get really good. I can't wait. <laughs> well, that okay. Well, we'll talk about it. <laughs> All right. Good episode, buddy. Take care. All right. Later. Bye.